Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the prophets. Specifically, we are diving into the book of Jonah, and here the team is going to be discussing Jonah chapter 1. Listen, we are wrapping up our series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart over on our YouTube channel. There's a link to that series in our show notes, and we'd love for you to head over there and subscribe, and we think you'll find it very helpful. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing Jonah chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is handling the technical side of things, as usual, with uh, recording and editing and delivering the uh, finished product. We are in the second episode of a series on prophecy. Last time we talked about prophecy in general, different dimensions of prophecy, the meaning of prophecy, a prophet as a council member of the Lord, a prophet as an intercessor who brings the needs of Israel before the Lord, argues for Israel before the Lord, but also as a covenant prosecutor who overhears the deliverances of the Lord's court and uh, brings those indictments and sentences to the people. Uh, so we, we talked about prophecy in general. What we want to do in uh, the next few episodes is go over the book of Jonah uh, and then after that, we're going to take some time to go through the prophecy of Daniel, uh, which will take uh, take considerable time, I'm expecting. But we wanted to start with a fairly a short and fairly simple book. Jonah, of course, is one of the minor prophets, uh, one of the 12 minor prophets. The minor prophets are uh, considered uh, a, a unit. It's uh, sometimes called the Book of the Twelve. Uh, and it, uh, although it uh, ranges from uh, early prophets uh, in the northern kingdom to prophets who were prophesying after the exile, like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, it's covering a, a considerable period of time, but there's a kind of coherence to these prophets uh, that uh, gives them a, a, a unity. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to discuss that topic at a, in a later podcast. But we wanted today to just plunge into the book of Jonah and talk about uh, the first chapter but to set things up, let me highlight a couple of things about the overall structure of the book. It's a it's a short book, which makes it uh, fairly uh, it's, it makes it easy for us to to handle in a few podcasts and to get in to dig into some depth. Uh, and it's a fairly clearly arranged book, at least at one level. Chapter one and chapter three begin with virtually identical statements. Chapter one begins: Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city." Chapter three begins, now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Uh, so you have the same appearance of the Lord, the same word of the Lord that comes, the same instruction to Jonah. Uh, of course, Jonah does something very different in the two cases. In chapter one, he arises as the Lord tells him to do, but he goes in the opposite direction from where the Lord tells him to go. In chapter three, he arises and does exactly what the Lord tells him to do and goes to Nineveh. But that the beginning of chapters one and three set up a, 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 a panel structure where the first two chapters are uh, anticipating what's going to happen in the second two chapters. Chapters one and two uh, run alongside chapters three and four. You can lay them out in, in sequence. You can see the similarities. So what happens to Joan on the boat is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen 
in Nineveh. What happens to Jonah with the fish is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the aftermath of his preaching in Nineveh. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go, but uh, that's a surely other more subtle structures going on, but that's a that's a fairly obvious surface kind of structure that will at least get us oriented to the book. Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind when people read or hear of the book of Jonah is the fact that it's a big fish story. It's a story about um, someone going out on a boat and um, events on the sea. It's worth thinking about just how rare that is in the Old Testament. Um, apart from the story of the ark in Genesis, there are very few sea stories. We have events during um, some of the lives of the kings where they send out um, ships from Edomite ports. Um, there are a few other occasions when we read about some sort of vessels and what they do. But apart from that, we just do not have stories that are set at sea. Almost all of the stories are set in the context of the land. The leaders of the people are shepherds. They're not fishermen, as we find within the New Testament. And it seems that this it sets the scene of what's taking place in the book. The imagery is that of going out upon the sea, and then that is connected with the ministry of going out to the nations. I think it's also something that helps us to understand what is taking place in the region of the world at the time. Israel is in a situation between two great powers. You have the southern power of Egypt, and then you have northern powers of, at this time, Assyria particularly. And then you have, later on, Babylon, Medo-Persia, other things like that. And they're caught in the middle among the pawns on the chessboard, as it were. And these little kingdoms that are buffers between these great powers are finding themselves thrown into tumult by the rising power of Assyria in the north. And this, I think, is represented in part by the sea that's thrown into turmoil. The unfaithful prophet aboard a ship with a number of pagan sailors. And this is, on the one level, a historic account of what's happening with the prophet Jonah. On another level, it's a symbol of what's happening with the region. And reading it in terms of the imagery, we recognize that something new is happening here. The word of the Lord is going out to wider nations, to the sea beyond the land. That's really interesting, thinking how foreign that kind of sea story is um, to the scriptural narrative. And even the vocabulary matches that. I was just looking over it today. And, and um, the normal term for ship used here only is probably a, um Egyptian loan word. And for sailor, um, malach is generally thought to be a Sumerian loan word. So th these aren't sort of native terms. And I guess that goes with the fact that it's not a particularly native story to the uh, to the biblical narrative. One of the big questions everybody has is why did Jonah flee? Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Uh, you, you know, you can do everything, all kinds of things with this. He was a carnal man. He, you know, is disobedient. Why doesn't he care? He's a prophet. We know that from 2 Kings 14, 25. And prophets are generally loyal men. Um, the mere fact uh, that he expects, as he says later in chapter four, that he expects that God would convert this nation. The mere, that mere fact doesn't seem to really explain Jonah's extreme behavior. And lots of preachers will say, well, he's just uh, toxic with regard to his nationalism, so patriotic, he didn't have 
any concern for the souls of other nations. I think that's reading a modern mindset into the text. Um, if we look at where Jonah is in northern Israel and when uh, this event takes place, remember northern Israel is corrupt from day one, um, and Jonah has been preaching there for a while against this. We know that Jonah has Deuteronomy 32 on his mind. He knows what's going to happen in chapter 4. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32 and 34 uh, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. I knew this would happen. Um, if, if Jonah knew that this would happen, why was that a concern to him? Um, and it seems like if he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32 and from Moses' song and the prophecies in Deuteronomy, then he knows that this is probably a prelude to Nineveh's rise uh, to come down and bring judgment against the nation of Israel. And as faithful as a prophet as he is, he still loves his people and he doesn't want to have any part of that, which is, of course, sinful, but it also gives us a different motivation than what we often hear with regard to Jonah's flight. And that fits the situation that he's in at home. Uh, he's uh, mentioned in Kings in connection with the reign of Jeroboam II, the namesake of the original king of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam II is the begins really begins the countdown to the end of the northern kingdom. For Jeroboam to the end of the northern kingdom is a sequence of seven kings. Uh, and so you're late in that period. As you said, Jonah knows the the rebellion of his people, even though the Lord has uh, several, as King says several times, including during the reign of Jeroboam, the Lord has shown mercy to them because of, because of his covenant, because of their fathers. Still, he knows that the, the handwriting is on the wall, as it were, for the northern kingdom. And uh, the worry would be that uh, they, he would the northern kingdom would get squeezed in, as Alistair was talking about, somewhere in the great power politics of the surrounding empires. I think it's worth also thinking about the way that the prophecy that Jonah brings in um, 2 Kings chapter 14 is a prophecy of expansion for Israel in a time of national unfaithfulness. And the reason for that is in large part because of the rising power of Assyria in the north. Assyria has rendered the um, Aramean kingdoms quiescent, and as a result, Judah can expand its borders, not being troubled by the Syrians in the way that it has been previously. So Assyria is on the one hand um, providing them with breathing room, but also it's this rising threat. And Assyria is a very cruel nation, and I can imagine that um, Jonah would be very concerned that they not be let off the hook that the Lord judged them because otherwise they're going to destroy Israel. Where, sorry, Jeff, uh, where is the quote um, from Deuteronomy in, in Jonah? Uh, Jonah 4, four uh, 2, the end there. Pretty much an exact quote from Deuteronomy 32, 14, I believe. Also Exodus 34, 5 through 7. It's, you know, that's one of the most quoted passages in the Old Testament by the Old Testament. Uh, is that um, declaration about who God is, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That, that's in Deuteronomy, is it? Right. Did I get, the, <laughs> did I get it wrong? Uh-huh. <laughs> James is skeptical. Exodus, 30, Exodus 34, 5 through 7. And then 
Uh, I, I've got referenced here. I see what I've done is um, I've got referenced here the Lord relenting from the disaster that He spoke about bringing on His people after the golden calf. So there's kind of a mi- mixture there in um, Jonah four two. It's not an exact quote, but it's a compilation of passages, especially that relenting from disaster. That's why I referenced thirty two fourteen. Exodus thirty two fourteen. The Lord re- relented from the disaster. Okay, gotcha. Uh, that he, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. There's a couple places where Jonah is confessing the Lord in quite orthodox ways. Uh, when he's when he's on the ship, and the sailors discover what happened, and they interrogate him, they they throw these questions at him. And verse nine, which um, it's kind of the center of the section between verse 4 and 16 of chapter 1. It says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Perfectly orthodox statement. But in the context, it's kind of an ironic, almost comical state confession for him to make because you know he's trying to get away from God. And he runs to the sea, which is one of the realms over which Yahweh presides. So this is not a great escape route. Of course, if God, if Yahweh truly is God of heaven and made the sea and the dry land, then there's no escape route. But there's there's a there's a confession there that, but it's there's a twist to it. I wonder if we should read four two the same way. There's a confession that draws on the Lord's proclamation of His own name in Deuteronomy in in, in Exodus thirty four. But I wonder if there's certain kind of ironic undermining of it when you put those words in the mouth of this particular prophet. Not that he's not sincere. I'm not suggesting that. I think he is. A real prophet, he's sincere, but uh, some of these declarations about God seem ironic given his uh, given his behavior and and both at the beginning and at the end at the end of the book. Yeah, he's he's very much outdone by the sailors, isn't he? Whereas he refers to himself as uh, a fearer of of the Lord, the God of heaven, they are said to fear a great fear and and to be like exceedingly afraid, and they clearly have a, a concern for human life, which. Jonah doesn't share. I mean, they're um, worried about um, his blood being uh, on on their heads, you know, and they try incredibly hard to save his life, to row back to dry land. So, uh, yeah, he seems very much outdone by the Gentiles here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a note on the fear that they express. They're they're afraid in verse 5 because of the storm that the Lord hurls on the sea. They become extremely frightened. Uh, when they uh, learn about um, where Jonah's, uh, when the, the storm starts picking up, uh, and then when they find out who Jonah is, they become exceedingly frightened and fearful of the Lord. So you have this uh, in the in the original text. You have a, a phrase. Uh, one one scholar describes it as a growing phrase. Uh, first frightened, then extremely frightened, then extremely fearful of the Lord. That growing phrase that links those different experiences and they're they're their fear is gradually being turned away from. Uh, so verse 16 is the climax of it. The, then the mere men feared the Lord greatly. It's moving from just fear of the storm to fear of the Lord who is the, in control of the storm. Right. Alongside that, you've got the sort of misapprehension in verse 6 that um, they think the problem basically is that God is not giving um, a thought to them and that sort of he's insufficiently aware um, of what's going on. And they soon realize as time goes on it's it's the opposite and that is then um 
coupled with a, a transition of um, uh, the God, so the Elohim vocabulary, um, to more specifically um, Yahweh terms as, as the chapter goes on. I think it's also helpful to read the book of Jonah against the backdrop of the other great um, story on the waters, which is the story of Noah. It seems to me that there are several allusions to it, not least in the fact that Jonah is the dove. That's what his name means. He's the dove who's sent out on two separate missions. There is a great focus upon animals in the second half. Um, Nineveh is a place that is characterized not just as a place with many people, but with a great many animals. And they take part in the fasting and repentance later on as well. There's a 40 days associated with judgment, just as there are 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Um, There's the threat to people on the boat because Jonah is on the boat, whereas in the story of the ark, it's the inverse of that. The people on the boat are safe on account of Noah's presence there. And it seems to me that we're supposed to read these two stories in juxtaposition with each other because the one illuminates the other and it helps us to see the way in which there is going to be a surprising sort of arc held open to the people here. Um, Even the number 120,000 mentioned at the very end of the book seems reminiscent of some of the numbers in the story of Jonah. And so it seems to me that we're supposed to reflect upon that juxtaposition and through that to discover some of the deeper intent um, that the Lord has in what befalls Jonah. Alistair refers to the name Jonah. He's described here as the son of Amittai, which is uh, sometimes linked up with the word emet, uh, faithfulness. There's some uh, different different ways to interpret that. Uh, and then the, the, the word, the name of the place, Tarshish, also uh, is a kind of stands out. There's not a there's not a lot of references to uh, characters. Jonah is the only human character that's named here. Yavi is the only other person who's named, and Tarshish stands out as a specific name. But it's uh, a little difficult to d- to determine exactly where Tarshish is. There are different different accounts of what uh, where its actual location is, and uh, I'd like the suggestion that commentators have made that its its role is more of a he is moving to, going to Tarshish. We're not quite sure what direct. We're not quite sure where that is. We do know that it's the opposite direction from Nineveh, but we also get this. Uh, Tarshish also has the connotation of being kind of at the at the end of the earth. So he's trying to flee from the Lord as far away as he can get if he's going to Tarshish. Right. It seems to proceed on two uh, planes, doesn't it? In so far as um, he's going in the opposite direction on the sort of east-west plane, but also in the text god is um in heaven god is sort of upwards and so the evil of um nineveh goes up towards him and yet jonah sort of heads down um initially down to joppa and then sort of down into the deepest part of the boat and i guess we'll get there soon but he he ends up um lower still in chapter two so there is some um, uh trying to distance himself from god um in every way possible um to the extent he almost seems to think that God will disappear if he just sort of shuts his eyes and goes to sleep for a while. Mm-hmm. Picking up on Alistair's point about how the uh, cattle are, are said sort of uh, to be uh, be part of the the fasting and the, and the calling out to God, which goes on, there seems to be this uh, more general theme to Jonah that creation just takes on this 
life of its own. Um, I mean, I, I know people who've tried to run away from the Lord and they've felt like the natural order has taken on this sort of life of its own and, and turned against them. But all, the, all this goes on here. There is this sort of ship which, I mean, literally sort of thinks to break up. It, it sort of decides to to break up. Um, there is a, uh, a sea which becomes angry and then later on becomes silent and there is a fish and plants who seem able to um obey god when he, he commands them to do various things and, and there is this whole sense in which just the natural um world co- comes into story in emphasis perhaps of god's um utter sovereignty of what's going on and, and mastery over all creation and that symbolism also works on the other level that as this symbolizes the state of the region a region thrown into tumult as a result of the riding, rising power of Assyria and other forces throwing the region into war and unrest. And the pagan sailors, the other nations around Israel, with the unfaithful prophet of Israel, caught together, as it were, on this flimsy bark in the middle of um, this tumultuous ocean, that the Lord is in control of all of the forces that surround them. The Lord is not just the Lord on the boat. Um, he's the Lord of the sea. He's the one who can raise up forces from the sea to protect even the unfaithful prophet and get him back on course. Hmm. And and Jonah is being used here as a lesson to Israel. I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast we did not too long ago that prophets also are the embodiment, symbolic embodiment of Israel's predicament. So here you have um, Jonah, like Israel not being faithful to the Lord's calling. Um, and so, uh, as the Apostle Paul puts it, like in Romans 2, uh, she's supposed to be a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, an embodiment of knowledge and truth. So the, the sign here, the symbolic import, is that the prophet Jonah, for them, is what she is like when she is d- disobedient, what Israel's like. Not only is Jonah in trouble, but the whole world is in danger. So the great storm that's hurled upon upon the sea, the Gentile sea, it's ready to break everything. And it's a great calamity, you know, Hebrew ra'ah. That word is used like 10 times or so in the book. I know, James, you can count and make sure I'm right. Um, (laughs) 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 But but it's this misery, this disaster, this calamity. But the point is, if, you, if we think Jonah's sin is just private, entirely his own, affecting him alone, it's not. His actions have dire consequences for everyone, including the Gentiles. And if Jonah would have been, would have been faithful, then these Gentiles wouldn't have been in peril on the sea. Um, and so this great storm of Yahweh has come upon everyone because of Jonah's, because of Israel's, disobedience. This is not just Jonah's problem. It's Israel's problem. Um, And it can only be solved when Israel, Jonah, dies and rises again. Uh, That's the sign of Jonah. So, you know, it's, it's a great lesson also for us here, I think. You know, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will uh, bow down and uh, submit to him. So, even the church is the new Israel and our calling in the world. It's a lesson for us. You know, when when we're privately faithless, especially pastors and leaders, 
when we're walking contrary to the will of God and running away from him, we're going to bring calamity and distress to the life of others, not just to ourselves. Um, so just a little pastoral exhortation there. Yeah. You also have the, uh, the, the other side of that, of course, is that when Jonah is tossed into the sea, the sea calms. So he, he's fleeing from the Lord. Uh, yeah, he's, he, his, his uh, unfaithfulness has created this turmoil. But then uh, uh, you, you referred to the sign of Jonah's death and resurrection, but the, the sea calms immediately when he's thrown in. And he's, he's determined to be the one that needs to be thrown in because by lot, which uh, seems to me to be a, a kind of Dave Atonement uh, reference, uh, he's he is literally functioning as a kind of scapegoat that's going to save the others by giving up himself, uh, and it's when Israel. I mean, if you take it allegorically, then it's Israel plunged into the sea of nations. That is going to be the uh, the kind of calming that uh, that's going to be have the calming effect that will still the sea of nations that's in turmoil. It's one of the surprising things that I've been looking through the book of Jeremiah recently. One of the surprising things as we think about the exile and all the ways it brings catastrophe upon Judah. But then you read after the exile, all these people returning back to the land who have been refugees in, um, with the Ammonites, with the Edomites and elsewhere, and they're finding great abundance from the soil. Um, the poor of the land have possession in the land and the land's enjoying its Sabbaths. Um, it seems that things are pretty good when <laughs> those who have been oppressing the land have gone into slavery. And there is a rest, a calming of the sea that occurs as a result. I think the other thing that we can think about here are the ways that the story of Jonah is taken up in the New Testament and inverted Christ on the boat with his disciples and the way that he can bring this great calm. He doesn't have to be thrown overboard. Rather, he, in his very presence upon the boat, grants its security. And likewise, as we've discussed in our series on Acts, in the story of chapter 27 with Paul on the ship. And again, there's a shipwreck. But this time, as the ship carries a faithful prophet, um, the whole ship and its company are going to be preserved. And so the pagans remaining with the faithful Israelite are going to be blessed as a result of his faithfulness in the inverse of what happens with Jonah. Another way in which Jonah's walk and experience seems to foreshadow Israel's is just this progressive escalation which goes on so initially the sea is stormy in uh, verse four there there is tumult um, on the nations and then it just sort of continues uh, going so the sea becomes in verse 11 um, more and more tempestuous I, I have here and then uh, again in verse 13 and and, um, uh, and and even in verse 15. So there, there is this progressive growing storm. It reminds me very much of the sequence of events in, um, I think it's Leviticus 26, where it's sort of said, if you go against the Lord, then initially the sort of crops will turn against you and the land will turn against you. And if in spite of that, you still continue to um, disobey the Lord, then, you know, various other things will uh, take place. And it just continues on on that way until climactically it, it then says you know and if in spite of all these things you still disobey the lord then the nations will be stirred up and, and finally the land will get its sabbath rest so there there is that sort of escalation as disobedience continues um in in the very fabric of the torah there yeah for for all that i mean jonah is uh, going the opposite direction from where the lord tells him to go 
Uh, he's um, uh, an unfaithful prophet, as we've said, but he is a highly successful prophet in this first chapter. Uh, he can't escape his prophetic role. Uh, you have a you have a collection of sailors here who start out uh, offering sacrifices to their gods and calling on their gods to save them. That doesn't work, uh, and the storm gets getting keeps getting worse and worse as as James just noted. Um, and by the end of it, after Jonah is thrown in and the sea calms, uh, then they fear Yahweh, verse sixteen, and they offer sacrifice to Yahweh and make vows. So. Right there on the ship, <laughs> apparently, uh, they set up an altar and they offer sacrifice not to Yahweh. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we could, I mean, you could, you could hedge around this and say they've added Yahweh to their pantheon of gods. Um, this seems to me to be something much closer to conversion. Uh, they're fearing the Lord greatly. They recognize that Jonah is right, that he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. He's the one who can control it. This God of the Hebrews is something, and now they're worshiping him. Um, that looks to me like a, 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 a conversion. And again, it's anticipating what's going to happen in Nineveh. So in spite of his reluctance, you could say, you know, uh, raise it up to the allegorical level. In, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, in spite of Israel's reluctance to carry out its function, the Lord is going to do it anyway. Um, you know, Israel, Israel rebels and gets scattered. But the effect of their scattering is that you've got Jews everywhere who still uh, bear the name of God and the word of God. And uh, the, Lord is, the Lord is accomplishing his purpose through reluctant prophets as well as through faithful ones. And it all reminds us of the way that Israel's life has always been lived on a stage with all of the nations round about seeing what the Lord is doing with and through them. Right, right. Uh, one of the big questions that people are concerned about, one of the... One of the Criticisms of the story. The the one reason why many think that this is more a fable than a uh, an actual historical narrative, of course, is the is the fish. He's thrown into the he's thrown into the sea, and the Lord appoints a fish to swallow him. As we've said, uh, the Lord is controlling the sea. He's controlling uh, the plant later on. He's he's the he's the sovereign Lord, and he can tell a fish to go and swallow Jonah. And Jonah survives for three days and three nights in that in the belly of that fish. So um, I think we we can't recognize um, this is a, a continuation of the of the allegory that we've been talking about. Uh, Jonah represents Israel. The sea represents the nations. Sea monsters in uh, prophetic literature sometimes represent great powers. Nebuchadnezzar is described as the sea monster in toward the end of Jeremiah. Uh, and so this is another picture of Israel being swallowed up into a nation, into an empire, into the nations. Uh, in addition, I you know I accept this as a historical event, as strange and and miraculous as it is that that Jonah actually was swallowed by a great fish and he actually survived for three days and three nights, and I can't explain how that happens, but uh, I believe that the Lord performed a miracle here, uh, but with this overtone of uh, foreshadowing what the Lord is going to do as a protection for Israel when they get thrown into the Sea of Nations. Yeah, notice too, just briefly, that uh, uh, Jonah is sent to the great city in Jonah 1, 2, and now there's a great fish, so that the fish represents Nineveh, and he's um, going into this fish, and he will also go into the city of Nineveh, 
Hmm. as Israel will do, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, obviously, his attention will turn towards the temple um, in chapter two, which then seems uh, significant too. We've remarked upon the way that prophets can embody their message. And here, I think, is one good example of that, as like Ezekiel having to perform symbolically the siege of Jerusalem or to go out as an exile through the wall, or Jeremiah having to um, bury something um, to um, have this ruined garment. Um, Here, Jonah is enacting a message to Israel, which is one of the reasons why the book ends on the note that it does with this sort of I don't know, parable-like question that puts the ball in Israel's court. Um, how will Jonah respond? How will Israel respond? I think all the, all the political context we've been, we've been talking about is, is important for understanding how the New Testament uses uh, the Jonah story. Uh, we've, we've already mentioned this, that Jesus talks about his uh, being three days and three nights in the belly of the earth as Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And we think of that as a uh, as an image of death and resurrection, which it certainly is. But uh, I think it's we have to take the whole story of Jonah into account. Jesus performs the sign of Jonah not, out, not only by going into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and rising again, but also by the proclamation to the Gentiles that follows from that. And the, um, the Deuteronomy 32 uh, dynamic that follows from that with the, with the provocation of the Jews to jealousy when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. So the whole package of Jonah, the Jonah story, Jesus has that whole, the whole narrative in view of which his death and resurrection is a, is the initiate initiator and sign, but that the aftermath of that with the pro- proclamation of the Gentiles is part of the sign of Jonah, I think. And Jesus is not just buried in the earth. He's cast into the moor of Rome. Yeah. Uh, in order to solve the, I mean, you have the difficulty of, trying to make sense of Jesus' statement there because uh, it doesn't seem that he was actually in the belly of the earth in the grave for three days and three nights if you plot out what seems to be the sequence of days. Uh, and uh, Jim Jordan has suggested that the belly of the earth uh, should be understood not as the grave, but as the kind of the um, umbilicus mundi, the, the, the belly button of the earth, which is Jerusalem. And Jesus descends into that belly, uh, the belly of the beast, as it were, and then rises again. So his death is part of that descent into the belly, but it's uh, it's not that's not the only thing that he's referring to. I wonder if these some of some of these thoughts to do with the typological significance of what um, uh, of what Jonah undergoes um, help us to not explain away, but help us to sort of understand the. Um, miraculous and and incredible nature of it i I often get the feeling that a a lot of the problem that i wouldn't say atheists necessarily but just lots of people have with jesus miracles is that they're thought of as just arbitrary demonstrations of power just sort of um uh like magic tricks and and you think why would god suddenly start just interfering with the natural world in that kind of way um obviously when you start to see Jesus's uh, healings uh, and and so forth as pictures of precisely what um, the God of Israel is, is doing, 
in the world and uh, foreshadows of the way in which God does want to heal and, and clean up creation, that they take on that extra significance. And I wonder if the same point can be made here that yes it is a strange and incredible thing and and you might think why would god just do that there are loads of ways in which sort of god could get jonah back to israel and and back on track but uh, if we sort of appreciate the real typological significance of jonah being swallowed um by this ship and what it signifies in terms of the exile and in terms of death and resurrection i just find that the the Thing makes sense um it, it, it isn't just this um arbitrary display of power but it, it is this um uh, foreshadow of exactly what god is going to do later on um on a bigger platform in, in world history mm. the word appointed is interesting as well it's used um here for um the big fish um and we see it later on again in the plant that's Right, raised over Jonah later on, and then the worm that is appointed, and then the scorching east wind, and these are not just things that happen by chance. It very much highlights divine providence in these things that might be just attributed to the natural order functioning autonomously, but in these factors, in these when. They represent kingdoms and powers, but they also are showing just the extent of God's sovereignty over the natural order and that nothing can be just attributed to pure chance. We mentioned the three days and three nights a couple of times. That That's the phrase that closes chapter 1, verse 17. And, of course, that's the foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection. But um, the third day pattern and theme is a, is a regular thing in the, in the, in the Scripture, it's built into certain rituals of, of the Levitical system. Uh, it's uh, referred to in various narratives, and typically the third day is uh, you think of as a as a, a scheme, uh, a week long scheme. Uh, the fullness comes at the end of the week. The Sabbath, as it were, comes at the end of the week. But in the middle of the week, uh, on the third day, something new happens, and so the beginning of the end happens in the middle rather than the, rather than simply at the end. And so you often have this imagery of a broken week, a uh, three and a half day period that we'll talk about when we get to Daniel and uh, it's found also in the book of Revelation. And Jonah fits in with that, with the uh, the th- three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then a resurrection from the belly of the fish uh, at the end of that three day period. And uh, when he comes out of the fish, he's given a second chance to go and pro- proclaim to Nineveh, which he, which he does this time. And so there's a Again, that you have this this kind of midweek, middle of history, uh, resurrection theme that's going on here, and fittingly, the dimensions of Nineveh, Nineveh is three days and three nights in its extent. Fittingly, in um, chapter three, verse three, yeah, there might be something else going on in terms of the calendar. Peter mentioned that the casting of lots here in Jonah chapter one, uh, and then Jonah being sent out from. The boat has got a, a kind of um, Yom Kippur, a Day of Atonement um, significance to it. And if you kind of think that that could be then the 10th day of the seventh month, there is three days and three nights um, in the belly of the fish, which take you to the 13th. There is a day's journey into um, uh, Nineveh and then presumably a day's journey out of it, which would take you to the 15th. And we then find um, 
Jonah uh, in a booth. You know, he uh, erects a sukkah for himself outside of the um, city, and he, he said to rejoice this great rejoicing, uh, Simcha Gedullah, which is the same phrase used of the um, what people are to do on the Feast of Tabernacles, um, which is obviously associated with the blessings of the nations in um, Zechariah and, and, and elsewhere. And, and so there seems to be this sort of uh, uh, a calendar timetable underneath the narrative of Jonah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.